I thank you um, that we didn't have to shovel snow to get out to our cars. Um, And we pray for our brothers and sisters who are doing that across the country. But we give you this time. Would you glorify yourself? Would you guide this conversation? And honestly, would you take from what you placed on my heart and um, plant those seeds deeply into our hearts and show each of us what it is that we need to recognize in this conversation? Jesus, in your holy name, amen. So we, over the last month and a half, have been in a series in which we've been looking at a lot of different aspects of what it means to be Christ followers. We looked at how we can begin sharing our faith for a couple of weeks. Then we spent a couple of weeks on our identity. Who are we and what has God called us to do? And then over this last couple of weeks, we looked at a topic that could seem completely out of, um, you know, off of, just more tangential to this whole thing, and that is our finances, and yet it has everything to do with this topic of God being God and we being his followers because at the end of the day one of the things that just came through so clearly over these last couple of weeks as we've looked at our finances is that it's all God's we are merely stewards and something that Lee said last week that really stuck with me was that what we need to be doing is not saying hey God how much of my stuff do you want but really What do you want me to do with what you've entrusted to my care in order to bring about and fulfill what you have called me to do or the business that you've entrusted to me? And at the end of the day, God is the one who needs to be showing us both of those things, both what our business is and then how we are called to do it. And so this week, what I want to do is, because as I was thinking about that this week, we have a business, God is calling us to do it, and how can I use the things I have? two things I realized. First off, we may each answer that question differently of what is my business? What is it that God has called me to do? But there's one thing that every single one of us in this room shares in common in terms of our business, and that is we are called to be God's representatives. We're going to go a little bit deeper into that in a few moments, but each and every one of us is called to represent God. The second thing is, Each and every one of us has been entrusted with a great deal of resources. I'm not just talking about our finances, although that's a part of it. Every single day we have 86,400 seconds. What are we doing with those? Are we spending them? Are we wasting them? Are we investing them in watching March Madness? I mean, what are we doing with those seconds? And to those gentlemen here right now, who are foregoing watching your team, John Jerzak, who doesn't even have TiVo and his alma mater is playing right now, I affirm you for being here right now. So how are we using the time that God has entrusted? That is a major resource that we have, and we only have a limited amount. And we're not even promised tomorrow. How are we using the giftings that God has given us? Where are we investing them? How are we utilizing them? And then how about the relationships that God has entrusted to our care, the people that he's placed into our lives? Because our relationships say a great deal about our relationship with God. Jesus himself said, the world will you know you're my disciples by the way you love one another, by the way you interact with one another. And there's one relationship in particular that we want to focus a couple of days on. So I'm going to focus, we're going to, over the next couple of weeks, we are going to unpack the marriage relationship. And I recognize that this conversation may not on its surface seem to be relevant for some of you in this room. Maybe you're not married at this point. 
Maybe you've been married and you're no longer married. Maybe you've never been married at all and maybe God's not even calling that to you. This will still have a tremendous amount of relevance for you. And for those of you who are young, um, this is still a great conversation for you to be listening to. We want to look at the way that God has designed us to do relationship both as male and female. This week, I'm going to focus on us guys. Next week, we're going to, ladies, this, the conversation is going to be more directed towards you. But to begin with, what I want to do is I want to begin in Genesis chapter 1. Because it always helps to understand the foundation from which we are playing from. We can just dive right into the conversation, but if we don't understand what's come before and what we're dealing with, what God's intention was, then in a lot of ways we're going to be, um, it's like, I use this analogy in my small group, it's like watching The Return of the Jedi without watching the first two Star Wars installments, right? It's a great story, but you're really missing out on a whole lot of the richness of what Scripture has to say and help us understand. So let's go ahead and go with the beginning. Genesis chapter 1, we're going to begin in verse 26. This is God's intention and in creation. God said, let us, and I, I find it interesting that he uses that plural term, us. It's reminiscent of the fact that God is triune. There's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He is speaking into this triunity. Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds of the sky, over the livestock, and over all of the wild animals, and over all of the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. First off, to be created in God's image, something that he's really been revealing to me over the last several years, is this being created in God's image has a whole lot less to do about any physical characteristic. It's not insinuating, therefore, that God has two arms and two legs and a big beard like Marty Hooper. That's not necessarily what this is suggesting. Nor is it pointing at any one character trait like we're creative and all those kind of things, although I'm sure that that's wrapped up in it. What this has more to do with any characteristic of us, it has more to do with our purpose. Let me explain. In the ancient Near East, when a king ruled a kingdom whose tracts of land were far greater than he had the ability to physically rule over, he would designate you know, uh, delegates, people who would rule in his stead. So if, he is, if his central kingdom is here, but he has people over here, he would send somebody to rule in his stead there. They would be his ambassador. They would be his representative. They would rule not because of their own inherent worthiness, but because the king had said, you will rule in my name. Does that make sense? That's what it means to be made in God's image. We were designed to be his terrestrial representatives in order to rule over creation. That's why he says, let's make man in our image so that they can rule over the birds of the air and the, the fish of the sea and over all of the land. They will be my representatives. Giving, and he's given us stewardship. It's his creation. Just like our bank accounts, it's his money. We are simply the stewards of that. You following me? Furthermore, he created both male and female in his image, we are all his representatives and both genders were entrusted with the responsibility of caring for his creation, not just men. And that's an important point that we'll get to in a little bit. We go on now in chapter two. I'm just going to hit a couple of points kind of following this thread 
that will ultimately lead us to conversing about how we today relate with one another. Verse 15 of chapter 2. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, You're free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you'll surely die. So hey, everything is yours. Just don't touch that tree. Verse 18, The Lord God said it is not good for the man to be alone. In all of his creation, everything's been good up until this point. Then he realizes, you know, in the same way that I am in community with myself, Father, Son, and Spirit, it's not good that man is alone. We need to find a helper that is suitable for him. Now, we may read that term helper. Obviously, what he ends up doing is he creates woman out of the side of man. And he says, here is this suitable helper for you. And we might read that, and has, as some people have done in history, said, well, that simply means that a woman is subservient and ultimately second class to man. As if helper is a weakened second class. It's almost like, well, this is Robin to Batman, or um, this is Tonto to the Lone Ranger, right? I mean, that kind of a thing. But I want to point out that if you were to look through and survey Scripture, 16 times God himself is referred to as our helper, our Ezer. The same word that Eve is described as man's Ezer or helper. Which means that this is in no way a term that indicates a second class status. It's not a derogatory term. And if anything, it indicates that she matches him. She is a strong, suitable counterpart to him in this process of caring for creation. Does that make sense? That's an important point. Because we could easily twist that to mean... Oh, well, right from the very beginning, God intended for man and woman to be on two completely different footings, and that is not the case. But we know what happens. In God's good creation, the serpent comes slithering. And he comes up to the man and woman and he goes, Did God really say not to touch that tree? You're not going to die if you eat it. He's holding out on you. He's created you to be deficient. He doesn't want you to be like him, knowing good from evil. And Adam and Eve begin to doubt God's goodness. And they, they decide, well, we'll take matters into our own hands. And they eat the fruit. And in that moment, sin enters in. And with sin comes shame. And the man and woman who hitherto had been naked and unashamed, willing to be vulnerable with one another and with their God, suddenly are ashamed of their vulnerability and they hide. They cover themselves. They hide from God. And when God finally calls them to the carpet, they start casting blame. Adam goes, it's that woman you gave me, God. She made me do it. And she goes, no, 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 no. It was the serpent. He made me do it. And so God begins, he brings some curses. And we often look at these curses as simply punitive. God's slapping them down, right? But in a lot of ways, if you look at this, the curses themselves that we see in chapter 3 are actually grace-filled Because God has always been about redemption. And even the curses themselves are grace-filled because at the end of the day, God curses the very things that the man and woman would be tempted to find their identity through, to find their fulfillment through. To the man, I'm going to curse the ground. No longer will it simply yield its crop. Now you're going to have to work hard at it. By the sweat of your brow, you're going to eat your food. And at the end of the day, you're going to return to the dust because from dust you were created and to dust you will return. And then, guys, a temptation of ours is to find our identity in what we do. And so God 
tweaks it so that we can no longer find our fulfillment there. To the woman in childbearing, will you both give birth and then raise your children? It'll be painful. And then he curses the marriage relationship. Now what I want us to see in all of these things is by tweaking the very ways that we tend to find our identity, it's almost like he cuts out a God-shaped hole in our hearts. No longer can the things of this world fully satisfy us. And it's constantly pointing us back to him. But I want to look at one of those curses because it is so foundational to our relationships as male and female in this generation. So in Genesis chapter 3, verse 16, we're just going to read the second half of verse 16. He says to the woman, Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. Now this term desire, we might read that in our English versions to think that he's saying, you know, you're just going to want to snuggle. You're just going to want to spend time sitting there and having him watch The Bachelorette with you or something like that which is absolutely not the case in what that word means because the very next time that that word desire shows up is actually in the very next chapter, in Genesis chapter 4. It's used of Cain after his brother Abel gave a sacrifice to God that God accepted, although Cain's wasn't. And Cain is angry at his brother. And God goes, Cain, what's the problem? If you do right, it'll be fine. But, in verse 7 he says, If you do not do what's right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, to master you, to rule over you. So you must master or rule it. You must get control of this temptation to lash out. Otherwise, it's going to take control of you. So what does it mean for the woman, her desire will be for her husband? It insinuates that the wife will somehow try to control or manipulate her husband into having him do what she wants. And likewise, the husband will rule over his wife, much like a king rules over his subjects, hence domineer, dominate. Try to rule with an iron fist. I'm so glad that this never plays out in our marriages, right? Interestingly enough, if you go through history, this curse was actually embraced by the Roman government. The very government that was ruling over Israel when the New Testament was written. The Roman government made this the law of the land. They said that the husband is ultimately the ruler of his household. He has the power of life and death over his family. If he's unhappy with his spouse, he can divorce her for any and every reason. His children, his children, he can disown them simply by turning his back on him. If a child is born and he's unhappy, all he needed to do is turn his back and that child would literally be taken out to the hills and left there. No longer his child. This is common in the Roman government. Servants were property. You know, worth no more than a chair. You could, you could do anything you wanted with them. That was what the household looked like in the Roman government, into which now the passage we're about to read in Ephesians chapter 5 was written. So go ahead and turn with me, the other side of your book, to Ephesians chapter 5. Because it's into that cultural milieu that Paul is writing this admonition to wives and husbands in Ephesians chapter 5. This, ad, this is written 
to the city of Ephesus, or to Christians living in the city of Ephesus, which was under Roman rule, was absolutely influenced by this Roman mindset that husbands are the king of their household, wives, children, and servants are nothing more than functionaries or parts of their household. In the Roman government, wives could only expect two things, a roof over their heads and children. Not date nights, not a listening ear, not that he would remember your birthday or your anniversary, not even that he would watch the kids. Simply a roof over your heads, provision, and children. And into that, beginning in verse 21, we read this. Submit to one another out of reverence to Christ. Wives, submit to your own husbands as you do to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, for which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. And husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present him to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. And in the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body. But they feed and they care for their body, just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. And for this reason, a man will leave his father and his mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. Quoting from Genesis chapter 2. This is, a profa- this is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you must also love his wife af- as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Now, I'm going to break this down for us. I want to kind of work through it. And again, today I'm going to be solely focused on what Paul's admonitions were to men. Next week, Lee will talk a lot to you ladies. But today... Guys, what is Paul saying to us? First off, let's look at this first verse, verse 21. Submit to one another out of reverence to Christ. Who's that directed towards? Everyone, right? It's directed to everyone, not just to women, not just to children, not just to slaves but to everybody, including the men. Now, would this be earth-shattering and, and, and uncomfortable for women to hear that they were called to submit to their husbands in, in this culture, in the culture of Rome that this is written to? Not at all. It wouldn't have caused anybody to bat an eye because it was commonplace. It was the law of the land. What was shocking was this insinuation that men, too, should submit to their wives. And submission is one of those words we don't like, right? I don't like to submit because I tend to think that submitting is kind of like just laying over and being a rug that somebody can walk over. But that's not at all what it means to submit. To submit simply means to willingly and intentionally lay down your rights or your wants for the best interest of somebody else. So, for instance, when I'm driving down the street, I've got places to go, I've got things to do, but all of a sudden I hear the siren in the distance. What do I do? 
I pull over. I submit my needs to get somewhere else so that, I don't even know who it is, but so that their needs can be met by the ambulance or the fire, uh, fire engine. That's what submission looks like, to willingly place your desires and your needs underneath the needs of someone else. But we read on. I want to read verse 21 and 22 because this is, this is an interesting thing that happened in the, in the writing of our, or the translation of this, is that chapters, or verses 21 and 22 are actually one sentence. I don't know why they put punctuation in some of your Bibles. They actually even put a, a break between chapter, verse 21 and 22 as if they're two complete sentences. It's one sentence. Submit to one another out of reverence to Christ. Wives to your husbands is unto the Lord. When we read it this way, we begin to realize that what Paul is doing is, hey, everybody, submit to one another out of reverence to Christ. And then he gives an example that they would fully understand from their culture. Wives to your husbands is unto the Lord, for the husband is the head of the household. And we might go, well, wait a minute, Eric, this doesn't make sense. If you're suggesting that everybody's called to submit, then how do we understand this idea of headship? Because by suggesting that the man is the head, doesn't that mean he's ultimately in control and so he doesn't have to submit? It's simply the wife's or the child's or the servant's responsibility to submit. And toward that question, let me give you my best understanding of what it means to be the head of the household. Probably the best modern approximation I can give you to headship is found on a a, a team. It's March Madness, so I will use a basketball analogy. Okay? Think of the family as a unified team. So the head would naturally be the team captain. Well, let me give you two pictures of what it means or what it has looked like historically to be a team captain. The first one is exemplified by a guy named Scottie Pippen. Scottie Pippen was an understudy. Well, he was on the same team as Michael Jordan. And while Michael Jordan was playing, Michael Jordan was in the limelight. And Scottie Pippen was in his shadow. But when Michael Jordan retired, Scottie Pippen thought to himself, finally, this is my time. It's my turn to shine. And so, I believe it was in 1984 or 1994, the Chicago Bulls found themselves in a semifinal match against the New York Knicks. There was 1.8 seconds left on the clock, and Scottie Pippen's thinking to himself, finally, the shot that Michael always took, it's my shot now. It's my time. And so he went over to the sidelines, and Phil Jackson's drawn up the play, and the play had the ball going to somebody other than Scottie Pippen. He was irate. How dare you give the ball to someone else? I have been waiting for years for this chance, and you're going to take it from me, Phil? I don't think so. And so Scottie Pippen, the team captain of the Chicago Bulls, refused to go back out on the court. And instead he sat on the bench and watched as his team made the game-winning shot and won the game. They may have won. He lost as a team captain, in my opinion. That's one picture of a team captain. A team captain that says to be the captain, to be the head of this team means I get my way. I get my needs met above everybody else's. And in contrast, another picture. A guy named Larry Bird. Also somebody who was central to his team, but he led in a completely radically different way. Larry Bird was the first one to show up to practice and the last one to leave. He made a point of pushing people to be the very best they could, and he improved the play of other players on his team by modeling for them, by pushing them, by encouraging them. 
he often led his team in assists because he was all about the team. His understanding was, I lead by example, not simply by getting my own needs met. Now, you look at this gentleman. Which of these two team captains do you think best exemplifies the type of headship that Paul is calling us to live out? Larry Bird would probably be the right answer. Okay, that's what I'm looking for. Thank you. Although traditionally, some people would point to Scottie Pippen and go, well, no, that's right. Man is the head of the household. Absolutely not. That's the Roman mindset. That is the twisted, skewed mindset that, that uses the curses found in Genesis chapter 3 as its foundation. But in reality, as the head of our households, we are called to model by example. If we want our families to be patient, well, then doggone it, we need to practice patience. If we want our families to be full of grace, then we need to be willing to give grace. I'm going to be totally forthright with you. I'm not particular. I don't like this passage a whole lot. Because I can count a number of times in my relationship with Kathy where she and I have been in a knockdown, dragout fight, and we are just angry at one another. And the last thing I want to do is to lay down my right to be right and to move towards my wife and apologize for things that I need to own. I'm just not at a point where I want to. I want her to apologize for her stuff, but I don't want to apologize for mine. And then the Holy Spirit brings this passage up. I go, doggone it. It's my job to be the first to move towards my wife and to apologize, to own my stuff, even if she's unwilling to do it for herself. That's what it means to be the head of my household. Now, do I want her to move towards me and apologize first? Absolutely. And there have been times in our marriage where she's had to do that because I just was unwilling in, in, in moments to just be able to get down off of my high horse. But at the end of the day, to be the head of my household means to be willing to model humility, grace, patience, love, intentionality. Anything that I want to see played out in my marriage and in my household, I need to be willing to model myself. So that's what it means to be the head of your household, is to lead by example. Paul then transitions from not just talking about headship, but he now transitions to telling husbands how they need to love their wives. Let's take a look at this. Beginning in verse 25, he now focuses the majority of this passage that has often traditionally been used to keep women in some subservient role, he spends the majority of this time talking to the men in a society that says you get to be king of your household. He now shows them what it means to be the head of their household. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church. Well, how did Christ love the church? Unconditionally. He sacrificially he loved us sacrificially. He loved us so much that he took on human flesh, walked amongst us, experienced life in this broken and fallen world, suffered, and then ultimately was willing to walk to the cross where he took upon himself the penalty that we had earned for ourselves because of our sinful rebellion. He died in our place. That is how he showed his love for us. 
That is what love looks like. And that's what we're called to do, is to love our wives in that way. So let me ask you this question, gentlemen. Hypothetically, you're walking down the street late at night, you and your sweetie. Some gunman walks out of the shadows and puts a gun to your head and says, you or your wife, who do I shoot? Would you be willing to say, shoot me, let her go? I truly hope that I would be willing to do that. In fact, I believe that I would take that bullet for my wife. And I suspect that almost every single one of you in here would do the same thing. But that's not the question I want you to consider. Here's the real question I'm going to ask this morning. Are you currently dying to yourself daily for your spouse? Are you currently taking up your cross every day and laying down your desires, your needs, your demands, your expectations for the well-being of your wife? So you come home after a very long day at work. You're mentally shot. And your wife is frazzled. The house looks like a bomb went off. Kids are swinging from the rafters, and you're thinking to yourself, did you do anything today? <laughs> right. I stayed at home for eight months at one point watching Grayson or watching Ethan while Kathy was working. And let me tell you, I know how much you do, ladies, and it is a tremendous amount of work, regardless of how the house looks. So you come home from a day of work, and you just want to... Relax. You just want to sit down on the couch and veg out. You just want to go in your room and be away from everybody and just kind of decompress for a while. But your wife is overwhelmed and the house is out of control and your kids are out of control. Headship looks like being willing to lay down your desire for some downtime and engage and be present and maybe, just maybe, even allow your wife to have a small break so that she can decompress a little bit from her full-time job of watching those kids and caring for their house or whatever it might be. To come home and just say, I have been working all day to provide. I deserve some downtime. And then taking it regardless, that's selfish. Now, I will say this. I know that many of you have figured it out in your your household where you go, you know what, whichever one of us is working, we come home and if we're just overwhelmed... We just need 15, 20 minutes of transition time. And if you guys have talked about that as a couple and figured it out, awesome. That's called communication, and that's a really good thing. You're figuring out what's best for an individual on the team, which is better for the whole team, the team as a whole. But if you're simply saying, I am taking this time because I deserve it, that is called selfishness. That is not called sacrificial love. And that's not what Paul is talking about when he calls us to love our wives as Christ love the church. But he doesn't stop there because love is not simply sacrificial. It has a purpose. He goes on. Verse 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church by giving himself up for her in order to make her holy or set apart or sanctified, some of your translations have, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. A couple of things I draw out of this as I'm reading through this. Paul is basically looking at the man and saying, listen, love is not only sacrificial, but to love your wife as Christ loved the church means to protect the sanctity of your marriage. To sanctify something means to set it apart from the common. 
means to protect it. Now, we cannot control our wives' actions. I made the mistake early on of trying. We can't control our wives, regardless of how good our desires or our intentions of helping them might be. The only person you can control is yourself. So, gentlemen, how do we protect our marriages? How do we set it apart from all the others? It means that we need to protect our mind, our thoughts, and our actions. We need to protect ourselves from allowing thoughts or images into our mind. There is no place for pornography in your marriage. You need to protect your heart. If you find yourself confiding in another woman at work, because quite honestly, this isn't something that you would want to process with your wife. Danger. Red flag. Beware. If you find yourself spending more and more time or flirting with somebody that you're interacting with or looking forward to opportunities to be near that person, danger. Protect the sanctity of your marriage. Because the enemy is far too conniving. And you would love to tank your marriage because it will not only affect your, your life and your wife's life, it'll affect your children, it'll affect other people around you, and it will affect your witness. Remember, the marriage relationship is an analogy, is a metaphor for our relationship between God and His church. And our marriage relationship is part of our testimony. So protect your marriage. Protect your heart and your mind. But it goes even beyond that. Remember, he says here, he, not only, he gave himself up for her in order to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. To wash her with the word. Gentlemen, I'm sorry, but I'm going to remind you, we are called to be the spiritual leaders of our home. We have a responsibility to think not only about our own relationship with God, but also our family's relationship with God. And to make choices that help nurture that. So some tangible ways that that might look like is actually reading Scripture with your family. Or at least processing what God has been showing you. Having conversations around your faith. It looks like praying for your spouse regularly. Furthermore, it looks like praying with your spouse. I have found that it's very difficult to stay mad at my wife when I'm sitting there praying with her. Something about having to lay down my right to be right in order to be able to come to God who has forgiven me of so much else, right? It's that, that, yeah, you know, you get it. It's hard to stay mad at somebody when you're praying with them, so pray regularly with your spouse. It does wonders for your marriage. It also looks like perhaps helping your spouse make it to church. Helping get the kids out of the house. Looking for opportunities to serve as a family like Kohela, second Saturday of the month, 7 a.m. Hypothetically. Looking for opportunities to serve as a family so that you remind yourselves that it's not just about our comfort, but we have been called to look beyond ourselves. To be, you know, it, it just looks like being in conversation about our faith. That's what it means to be the spiritual leader of our homes. And it also looks like focusing on and caring for and nurturing our own relationship with God because it's very difficult to lead somewhere and lead someone in something that we don't have ourselves. 
And then he goes on. So we've looked at several things. We are called to love sacrificially, not selfishly. We are called to protect our marriage. We are called to promote and nurture our spirituality within our home, to be the spiritual leaders of our home. And then we're also called to provide. What does it mean to be the head of our household? We have a responsibility to provide for our family what they need. Paul said, in the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. Right? As you love your wife, it's like you're loving yourself. Or or is that one term we always throw around, happy wife, happy life. That's really what it comes down to, caring for your family. Now, I should say this. Providing for your family does not mean giving them everything that they want. I used to teach over at Newport Harbor High School, and I would interact with the students, and far too often I found that these kids who were driving Beamers and, and, and other very expensive cars to school who had every single technology that they could possibly have were starving for the one thing that they wanted more than anything, and that was relationship with their parents. Far too many absentee fathers... Because we have this mindset that the best way to love my family is to give them all the things that I didn't have growing up. And when we do that and we, our focus is that, and we begin to pour ourselves into work, we steal from them the one thing that they need more than anything, and that is our presence. So fathers, love your wives, love your families sacrificially. Protect your marriage. Seek to be the spiritual leader of your home. And if you don't know what that means, if you don't know how to do that, find somebody who's doing it. I'm, in, I'm still working on this. I, I'm a work in progress. But I'd be, I would love the opportunity to kind of brainstorm and just walk with you. I know Lee would as well. He's way further down the road than I am. Got a lot of years under his belt. Hey! You're leading the plus 60s group. I'm just saying. Which, by the way, I think that he should actually name new wine old wineskins, but he totally keeps shooting that down. I think that that's a great name for that group. I love you. Um, okay, I've totally derailed. I apologize. But here's the thing. If, if, if we are able to do this, if we are able to be the type of sacrificially loving heads of our households that Paul calls us to be, if we are willing to submit our desires to the unified needs of our family and to place their needs ahead of our own, then some amazing fruit will take place in our marriages. We will find that our wives will flourish. We will find that our marriages will flourish. Dare I say, even our love lives may flourish. We will also find, and I think this is more important than anything, we will find that our witness as a family will grow. Remember, our marriages are part of our testimony. People are watching our lives, and we have a responsibility to be God's representatives in our marriages as well as as individuals. So that's the call this morning, guys. I want to end in kind of a fun way. I want to give a little bit of space for some of you wives out there to affirm your husbands for the ways in which they are doing this 
We're not going to have time for everybody to share. But I do want to give a few of you an opportunity to come up here and just a sentence or two to affirm one way that your husband has been loving your family sacrificially. One way that your husband has been lovingly being a leader in your home. I would love to illustrate through tangible ways what this looks like. So, ladies. Terry Phipps. Shocking. Oh, yeah, actually, I, Tom Phipps is a wonderful man to talk to about being a spiritual leader of his home. So that man right there, I, here you go. Tell us. I just, Tom and I have been married 42 years in May, and there's never been, <laughs> there's never been a morning. Well, he gets up early, and I'm a late sleeper, and if you know me, nobody calls before 9 o'clock. But he is on his knees in prayer, always, every day that I wake up before he leaves and see him. And then if he if, if he's, hasn't left yet and I'm awake, he brings me coffee on a 10-foot pole. <laughs> he's so sweet. <laughs> and Byron Winicky, because of you, I know the love of God. I'm going to cry. 50 years. Okay, we have grown together. You have been patient with me as I've grown in the Lord, and you've shown me God's love through that. And you've also been very humble and broken, and before our family you've been that, and that's what brought our children to you, you know, to the Lord. And so I'm just so grateful to be married to you for this long. Praise the Lord. 50 years. Not quite there yet. Actually, it's 23 this year. Woo-hoo. Um, Tim Bundy has been just encouragement. I get all these crazy ideas and get asked to do 10 million things, and I have a hard time saying no to anything. So he has been incredibly patient and supportive, and the house is not the way he wants it, and the schedule is not the way he wants it. And I ask him, I've been asked to do this. What do you think? And he's like, I support you. So he's been awesome. Oh, no. <laughs> Sit down. Come on, Sheree. Hun Bun. He's always the one in the neighborhood that is out there playing basketball Amen. and football with all the kids. And also, he teaches my son how to be romantic with his wife. Ew. And he lets his wife refer to him as Hun Bun in public. And he likes it. Um, So there's actually a lot of things I could say, so I'm trying to think of um, maybe just one. I think the thing that means the most to me is um, starting out the day with Jesus. And Eric has really modeled that for us. In the morning I wake up and he's already up um, reading the Bible and um, really just putting the value of that God comes first. And so there's lots of things, but I think that's the thing that means the most to me because it's encouraged my relationship with God, which is the most important. And with our kids, we start the day with reading the Bible and praying before we do anything. 
Isn't this fun? I've been married six years almost, and my husband is rocking our three-month-old in the back, so that's huge. Yeah, buddy. And um, one thing is that I'm not a very great cook, although I've gotten better. It's been six years, but um, my husband comes home from a long day of work. He plays with the kids, and then he cooks for me. And um, that's huge because that's a big thing for him. His mom has always cooked. So I just say I love him for that, and he's a great uh, spiritual leader for our boys. Uh, last April 29th, I had brain surgery, and Mark has been by my side, making me breakfast, lunch, dinners, cleaning the house, doing whatever, because this is what Christ asked him to do. He was off for six months, thank God, and uh, he took care of me. He really took care of me, and I'm, I'm growing a lot slower than the doctor said, but, <laughs> but I'm getting there. But I just want to thank him for that. All right. I'm so glad you did. Um, I'm not a public speaker, but I do want to share with you about my husband, Dennis Frost. Um, February 8th of this year, we celebrated 61 years <coughs> being together, and we were dating for six years before that because we were too young to get married. But uh, I just wanted you to know that Dennis is a very spiritual person and that he had inscribed inside my wedding ring together with God. Is that not cool? I love it. Thank you. I love you so much. All right. Let me have that. Diane, would you come back up for just a moment? I'm going to have Diane pray over us guys. Those of us who have been entrusted with the heart of one of God's daughters as well as those guys who, who he may want. I mean, we are all works in progress. Some of us are already kind of on the field trying to figure out what it means to be a husband. Some of us are going to figure that out at another point. And some of us, he may call to simply love the people he's placed in our midst. Although we may never fully get married, we are going to be loving people in our midst. So would all of the guys, everybody with a Y chromosome, stand up. And we're going to have Diane pray a prayer of blessing over us. And ladies, please just extend a hand over the men near you. Oh, wow. Wow. Oh, thank you, Jesus. Heavenly Father, Lord God, what a privilege it is to be gathered today with your men and ask for a blessing upon their life. Lord, as, as they are willing to be led, Lord, I pray that you give them all the courage and the hope that as they follow you, Lord, and seek you and desire to know what it is that you want for them, that they will have an impact, no matter what season of life they're in, Lord, whether they're older or young and married or not. Lord, I pray that you just give them the hope that as they follow you, that they would have an impact on those that they love, and they would bring honor and glory to you. So, Lord God, please give them just hope and encouragement in their spirit. 
and let them be known for all their victories, Lord, not their defeats. I pray that you just guard their minds, their hearts. Uh, I just pray that you would make them purposed and intentional and determined to serve you the best they can. And I just thank you for the privilege and that our communities can have right now to lift these men up. We desire that our men would be known as godly men and that they would honor you in the way that they lead their lives. So we ask for this together, and we thank you in advance, Lord, because your word goes out and does not come back void. So I pray that every man leaves here more determined today to live the life that they were meant to live through you. And we ask this in your son's name and in the power of the name of Jesus Christ that you've given us to ask for these things. Thank you, Father God. We love you. We adore you. We worship you. So in your son's name, we all agree and ask for this. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Diane. All right, let me have the worship team up. We're going to do one last song, and then it's going to go and be the church outside of the walls of this place.